So we're going to read from John 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's preparing his disciples for the time that he's going away. I, I, actually, that, that slide thing, I wouldn't mind being ready. Um, Are you guys multitask, or is that going to be difficult for you? Let's 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 put that up. The, I've, we've been playing this for the for the last two weeks. Different versions of this guy um, who's making pottery, and he's basically taking this lump of clay. You can s- switch it on. Um, he's taking this lump of clay and he's molding it into what we see up there. And we're using it as a kind of parable or as a, a visual aid, a teaching tool to encourage us to understand that in, in a sense what you see up there is God with his hands upon us saying, trust me with your life, trust me with your circumstances, trust me with what I'm making. But the process of making is um, takes some time. Now this lasts three to six minutes. Imagine if we slowed it right down so it lasted for 30 years or 40 years. And, and what would that look like? And what would that feel like? So I just want to keep that as a backdrop as you, as you watch him. You'll notice there's lots of pressure, there's lots of contact, there's lots of water, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But it's the clay cannot mold itself. And the difference between us and the clay is that we can get off the wheel. And we can say no. So it's way more difficult being a potter with human beings than it is to do it with clay. Because it's hard to mold wiggling. So that's just at the background. And Jesus is really with his disciples trying to begin the process of molding or recreating what God intended. So he's told the disciples that he's going away and they're not too thrilled with that. And I'm just going to read some extra excerpts from that. He said, I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asked me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So he's going away to, to, to deal with, the, through the crucifixion, the, the rampant reign of evil on this earth, and overcome that with the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit. The key to victory over evil, the key to the kingdom of light over darkness, is the presence of God by his spirit present now. One of the reasons we worship will be because we actually stand and declare God is faithful even when it might be chaotic. And we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. A promise again that God continues to speak down the ages. He continues to speak to his people. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. He's talking about joy on earth, not through death. 
In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. That is a very, very cool invitation. One of the things we need to keep asking ourselves is if Jesus is sitting across from us, I always ask this to people, well, if Jesus is here, what do you want? What do you want? What are you asking him for today? There's some things that he's not going to answer. But there's much that he will answer. You enjoying that? The process of changing something from nothing, virtually, to something beautiful, which is a, a phrase that was used by Mother Teresa when she was asked, why was she working with these fetuses that were basically dying, or these early, early births that died, and she said, we're making something beautiful for God in the streets of Calcutta. And at the end of this chapter, Jesus says to the disciples, um, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. What follows that? In this world, you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. In me you will have peace. In the world you will have trouble. I have overcome the trouble. So if you stay in me, you will know peace in the midst of trouble. If you stay in Jesus, you will know strength, protection, security, resources, even joy that are available to you in the midst of circumstantial trouble. That is revolutionary. Why do you think most of the world is not that interested in Christianity? Or what do your friends see in your life when you say you need to believe in Jesus, what do they say? I'm not accusing you, by the way. I'm asking myself the same question, and it's somewhat embarrassing at times, but every now and again, there's hope, right? And it's a question of what do my friends see that shows them that there is a difference in me because of my relationship with God in Jesus? The only place they're going to see the difference is when the pressure's on. The only place they're going to see, time they're going to see, I'm not going to be impressed with you when, you know, you've just won a hundred million dollars and you're sitting in the Caribbean. That's not going to be a testimony of anything other than why don't you share it with me? I'll just be jealous of you. It's going to be when things aren't going well or things are a challenge and you're able to say, but I know a peace, so I'm not, I'm learning not to be worried. I'm learning how to rest. I'm learning how to walk in faith. And I want to talk this morning about that. And I want to pray that God will open us to uh, allow him to continue that work that he's already begun. And so, Father, as we just spend this time together, I pray for each of us as we sit here today, that we would have, and you would give us by the gift of your Spirit, a quickening of the adventure that you've invited us into. 
and that we would have a sense of anticipation that what you've begun, there's still more to come. And we want to ask you to please give us a trust in you that overcomes our need to control the process or understand. And we just ask that you will enable us to so uh, know you that we will be more comforted by your presence with us than what you have accomplished. So we just ask that your spirit will give to us a deeper relationship with you as we learn how to walk with you through this life. In talking this morning, I've talked about the potter and the clay, and I've talked about the clay and the process of creativity, and we looked two weeks ago at the creativity. If you can take a film like Avatar, and you can see that incredible creativity that takes place, or Ted came up and showed us his, his template for steel, a mold, and you have this just lump of steel, and it becomes this mold because of the creativity and the ability to, to, to both conceive of this thing, design it, put it in a computer, then put it in a machine that does it all, and it's amazing. And we said, well, if we are so smart and we can do these things, why do we have a problem with believing that God of all creation is actually a little smarter? So, I find it helpful to make those comparisons because it encourages me to get over myself, encourages me to go, you know, dial down. I'd rather trust him than you. And I mean, you know, I could give you a litany of when I trusted myself, what a disaster that was. So, we're talking about now the, 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 the potter. We're talking about God as Lord, Jesus as Lord. The God of all creation. Because these things flow off our lips really easily. Oh yes, I believe in God. I believe he created the world and all that stuff. And you kind of go, so now what? He created the world and went for a walk in the galaxy somewhere and said, to heck with that. No, you know that Jesus came to say, the God who created the universe created it just like a father creates a toy for a child and says, I didn't create the toy for the child so the child would get out of my face. I created the toy for the child so that the child and I could enjoy the toy together. God's passion for you and for me is relationship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your spirit. We take that, twist it around and say, you better start loving God. Which is useless. Any of you watch the Australian Open? It's a tennis thing that's just finished. What happens? Somebody serves... And the person who returns takes the strength or the, the, the energy or the speed of that ball and very good servers, Andre Agassi was the best in the world and Federer is probably and Wayne are probably the best returners of service. What happens? You take the power that's coming from the one who serves and you return it and if you have skill you can, you can harness that energy into a winning shot or return or at least something that will uh, help you win the point. The love of God... We are, we are never initiating with God. God is always the one who's thrown the ball into play. We're never initiating anything that's constructive. Because God doesn't need us. He says, come play with me. It's my idea, not yours. You need me, I don't need you. It works that way around. That's what Lord means. You get to play in my house. And even the houses you own and buy and sell are mine.
this world says I am judged and I am affirmed by what I have. And God says, it's not, I'm not interested in that. And that's why we're talking again and again about God is interested in character, molding character. And so he says, I didn't ask you to love me. I've sent, I've served love down into your court in Jesus with power, passion and everything that you would possibly need. All I'm saying is, catch it and it will give you a momentum to love me back with all your heart and all your soul and all your spirit. If God is not alive in you or me, it's not because his resources aren't poured out. You've either got a wacky theology where we need some help or you've got a lack of experience where we need help or multitudes of other things which we need help. We need one another to be able to step into the fullness of God. The clay is only formed on the wheel. And our lives will only be formed in the context of community under the presence and spirit of God. And I think one of the people who most illustrate in this world you will have trouble, but in me you will have peace, is Saul, who became Paul, who wrote half the New Testament. And I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at him because I think he's amazing. And I found him very moving as I've reflected on this, actually. You have these paradoxes all the time in the Gospel in the Bible. Paradox means you have the opposite truths always holding together. So in the crucifixion, Jesus defeats. Where he looks most vulnerable and most defeated, God's power is actually most at work because he's defeating evil. He's not just doing the superficial thing. And in Paul's life, you actually see the most effective time he is ever uh, used by God is when he is most helpless. And I think there's an encouragement for us about engaging in life, trusting that God will be faithful. You know the story of Paul? You know how he starts off? He starts off as a religious Jewish man who is incredibly zealous for the Jewish faith. He has a passion that is terrifying and the early church is terrified of him. If ever you see a, transform- a reformation or transformation from what one man was to what he became, you can look at the life of Saul. And I say this because I think there's a challenge for us. And that challenge is that I think one of the hardest things for us to get through in the Western culture is our apathy and our arrogance where I'm really happy for God to sort out my life and sort out my circumstances. But he's actually saying, I want your life and your character and your heart. And I say that because one thing about Saul was that he was passionate. And when he was passionate, he was passionately wrong. And I want to ask you something, and that is, what is your passion? What is your passion? Do you go onto my blog 
I put on a speech by J.K. Rowling who, uh, who, that I listened to last night. J.K. Rowling who wrote, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings. You know, Harry Potter, I mean, that's Tolkien. She gave a, a, an address at, at Harvard University at their, commend, their, their you know, graduation ceremony in 2008. And she spoke about, she's, her theme was the, the benefits of failure. And she spoke about her first six years where she failed at everything. She had a failed marriage. She had everything that her parents wished she wouldn't have. She, had, she was virtually in poverty. And she wrote, she said, I was, I was a failure with a big idea. And the thing I was most afraid of was fear. And when I had totally ruined my life and I was still alive, that became the foundation for the rest of my life. And she said, you can live safely and never make mistakes. But if you do that, you'll never fully live and that will be your mistake by default. And I really believe that's also a word for us, which is, what are we passionate about that God can actually harness? And what I mean by that is, even if you're passionately wrong, pursue it. That sounds funny, but I mean it. Many of us are so tentative on everything that we just never go anywhere. Give yourself permission to fail. Give yourself permission to make mistakes. Give yourself permission to be wrong. Who cares? All you have to say is, I might be wrong. But what's the passion? Because if we don't have passion, we will never actually have conviction. And without conviction, you will never spark in the Christian life with anything that's attractive to anybody else. What lights you up? God's desire for us is that we're lit up. And Paul found that. He was passionately against Christianity. And he came to Damascus to passionately kill, imprison, and destroy the church. And on the way to Damascus, the living God, in some strange way, meets him and he falls to the ground and he's blinded. And God says to him, uh, Paul, what are you doing? Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? When he was dealing with the church. And Saul's life has changed in those three days after that. And this, this man, Ananias, who we never hear of, God speaks to him and says, go and pray for him and go and lay hands on him. And then Ananias is where one of the heroes of the faith. It's like going to lay hands on Idi Amin, who somebody's just told you has been converted. And you go, oh yeah. Or Hitler. And he goes and he lays hands and he says, the God has told me. And God told Ananias, he said, this man is going to be used by me virtually to change the world. I wonder if he went to Saul because he couldn't find lots of passion in the people he could have touched. I don't know. Or maybe Saul's passion was always misguided and he was just going to give him an answer to a cry that he might have said, which was, God, if you're there, let me know you. And he changes Saul, and Saul is blinded. He has a supernatural experience that goes beyond his intellect into his heart. And he realizes that if God hadn't been merciful, he would have killed him right there. And that's another aspect of our lives where, do you want to know God so real, so well, 
that you're willing to have him expose to you how much you need him. In other words, how aware of you are, are you of your need for grace, for forgiveness? Or do you actually think God's pretty lucky to have you? Has he broken you? Have you come to a place where you realize what you are made of without him? Because we can ask him. We can ask him to take us deeper. We don't have to go through huge negative things, but there's an element of allowing him to go deep in us. What do you want from God this morning? What do you want him to do in you? His passion is for relationship with you. If, like me, you spend seven years getting angry with him and ask him to change circumstances, he doesn't seem too open to that. He's always saying, let me love you. Where does this lead? I'm really saying one thing this morning that I believe God's wanting to encourage us in. And that is, the more I'm aware of the love of God in my life, the more resource I will have to live this life in a victorious way, despite the circumstances that come my way. The less relationship I have with him and with my friends around, the more my faith will be thrown backwards and forwards by circumstance and all my energy will be spent trying to control my circumstances and I will think that circumstances reflect how much God loves me. And if you want to see how tr false that is, look at Saul's life, Paul's life. Paul is touched by God and he goes to Jerusalem and then he goes out into Tarsus and in the region there for 14 years. He's really in the backwaters. And in that time, God is molding him. God is taking a character that is passionate and beginning to mold it and shape it so that he can really use it in a very, very powerful way. And I want to ask you, and I'm just keeping on throwing these things out, how is God working with your character? That's peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, forgiveness, mercy, faithfulness, when it's, it's all that stuff that money can't buy. How's God working with your character? What do you think he's working on now? Because he never stops working. What do you think he's working on now? What do you think he's wanting to form in you in these weeks? Are you cooperating with him? Are you thanking him that he's got something that he's going to do in you? Or are you resisting him? What's he molding in you for your character to release and be the place out of which the gifting will come? In Acts 16, we have this account that's amazing to me. Saul and Pilate, Paul and Silas, Saul and Pilate. Paul and Silas are in Rome. Well, they're not in Rome, they're in prison. They've, they've, just before this in Acts 16, 
It's the Sabbath, and they go out to they go out to a river where they find a uh, they were looking for a place of prayer, and they find this woman Lydia, and uh, they get talking, and she she's quite wealthy, she's a, 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 a sort of entrepreneur with cloth purple cloth, and she they, they go out, they strike up a conversation. She actually becomes a Christian there, and then uh, she she says, "Come to my house," and there's this wonderful you know uh, encouraging circumstance. And then they were going to a place of prayer further on a little bit later and this girl who continually shouts out to Paul and says, uh, what does she say? She, she basically speaks the truth. She says, these men are servants of the most, guy, most high God who are, uh, who are telling you the way to be saved. And she did this day after day. So initially she probably sounded like a, you know, somebody to, to be encouraged by. But eventually it's, Paul discerns this is demonic. And she's actually a fortune teller making money for the guys who really have employed her or who control her. And so at, after about three days possibly, Paul turns around and he speaks to that spirit and says, in the name of Jesus, get out. And this girl is delivered of an occult spirit. Problem is she can't tell the future anymore. So the men have lost their money. And men who lose their money don't like it. Because money is power. So what happens? I would think, you know, God, I go out there, I'm going to prayer, I'm minding my own business, I didn't ask for this. We didn't sort of react like I normally do, and we spend some time, and then, yes, we do, we deliver this girl, so she's free. She's no longer abused by these men. We should have a testimony. She can come and stand here and tell everybody what a wonderful God you are. That's what I would do. Well, the men go into town and they say, these guys are stirring up trouble. And they're threatening our economy. They tell lies and half-truths. And what happens? Paul and Silas get arrested. What happens? They go before the judge or the jury and uh, they're attacked by a whole group. And they go into the prison and the magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they've been severely flogged, severely flogged is brutal. I read these things, you know, and you go, ah, severely flogged, no big deal. It's the cat of nine tails lashing, taking all the, the skin off your back. 39 times. Brutal. And then they lock them up in the inner cell, which is on their own, Paul and Silas. And I think this is one of the miracles of the, of the New Testament. In our egocentric, spoiled little pampered world that I live in. These guys are bleeding, painful, sore, midnight, Hallelujah, Jesus is great, hallelujah, da 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 ba ba bum Whoa, it goes all around the prison. Because the other prisoners could hear them, Paul and Silas singing songs. Well, you sing songs, they might come and beat you up again. But the passion of Saul, who went to persecute the Christians, is now the passion of Jesus' spirit that says, bring it on. Flog me again if you want. 
What's that like? What would, what would it be like to have that kind of faith? To have that kind of strength? To have that kind of encounter? A little bit further on in the night, they've sung their songs and there's an earthquake. Praise God, he's answered our prayers. We can low now. In my egocentric world, there's no question, I'm out of there. Thank you, Jesus. Now I've got to test me. The girl was saved, we were flogged, then we were saved. God is fair after all. I don't like the beating, though. What happens? Paul, because he's had 14 years working on his character, goes, I know God, and his ways are not my ways. I don't think this earthquake is about setting us free. I think this earthquake is about ministering to the people around us. Because if we run right now, that jailer will die. Because he let us escape. And I don't think God is saying, I want you free, so that man dies. He's a father and a husband. And I love him as much as I loved you. And I have as much grace over his life as I had over yours. Remember yours? So they don't go anywhere. The jailer panics, comes running in. And Paul says, eh, no, no, don't sweat it, we're all here. And the jailer goes, what's your problem? You should have run away. And Paul probably says, well, it's the kind of guys we are, you know. Jesus is, loves you. Jailer takes them into his home, gives them a meal, washes their, becomes a Christian. Why? Because he says he sees an extraordinary act of love and selflessness in a man who didn't just speak and sing little songs, but a man who sang songs with his feet in the stocks, his blood pouring down his back, his body aching. And when he had the opportunity to run away, he didn't. Because you are important. And if I ran away, you would die. Isn't that cool? Isn't that powerful? That's the kind of Christianity that Jesus was wanting to release. You're more important than me. So I lose some money. So what? You're more important. What would that be like to witness in our culture? What do you need? How can I be inconvenienced so that you can be blessed? God forming character in his people works through circumstances that destroy other people. Why was he singing? I think Paul and Silas were singing because they were desperate. I think Paul and Silas were singing because they were hurting. I think they were singing in that cell because they were almost broken. And they really didn't know where they were going to go. And they didn't have any strength left. And they didn't know if they could see it through. And I think they sang to remind themselves that God is faithful. And I don't know how many times I say that to us, but for God's sake, press into worship. 
If you want to see your life transformed, for God's sake, put the coffee cups down to hell with your legs being sore. Stand up and press in to worship the living God who bled on a cross for you and is worthy of that. God is not favored when we turn up late and just go, oh well, I'll sing a song and then, oh boy. I'm not berating you, but I am exhorting you and me. Worship is a key to the release of strength for people to know extraordinary power when their physical wants to give in. That's what Paul and Silas were doing in that cell, I believe. So what do we do in the midst of circumstances? We gather together and we worship, not to escape, but to be empowered in order to be different in that world in which we're called to live. And that is cool. That is powerful. And that is entirely based upon understanding how this all works, which is God will be faithful as we place ourselves in the center and say, Lord, you are worthy. These circumstances are the result of all the stuff that's rejected you, but I am going to honor you, and I am going to praise you, and I'm going to give you thanks because you love me, and nothing's going on here is because you don't love me. And I need your strength in order to show a love and a mercy that I don't have. I want to kill these guys. And if I don't allow myself to come under your spirit and under your presence, that's what I will do. I know me. I have a tolerance level that's about that long, and if I let it go, that's it. I need you, Lord. And Paul goes through his journeys... And all he does is see the prison in Rome ahead of him. He doesn't face a comfortable life. He doesn't face rewards. He doesn't face anything. He knows he's heading for, for, for death. I could go through to Corinthians, which is where Paul boasts about his sufferings. We'll go through Philippians 4 where he talks about I've learned to be content in all circumstances. We'll go through Philippians 4 again where he talks about rejoice always. I say rejoice. All of those things he learned through prison, learned through hardship, learned through the things that he was going on. But I think the thing that most speaks to me as I reflect on Paul's life is his, his joy, his courage, and his persistence in worship. And I want to encourage us in that because I think our greatest challenge, certainly mine is, how to live with joy and hope and conviction in a world that is continually trying to take that away. And the circumstances are continually erode that. I don't know how to do that without deliberately spending time. And Paul at the end, just before he, was di- he died, which was what? It was, he was, his head was chopped off in Rome as an excuse probably for the Neronian persecutions in AD 63. 
And he says this to, to Timothy at the end of his letter. He said that, In my defense, no one came. He knew what it was like to be abandoned. No one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Close with two things. One is that I think when Paul was in prison, he was most alive in a bizarre way. I think when Paul was chained to a Roman god, he must have looked up at the guy and said, as Graham Cook would say, it must suck to be you. Whose prisoner is whose? I am wonderfully free. I want to tell you about Jesus and you're stuck because you can't go away. You have to guard me, so you'll have to listen to me. And I think many people became Christian through the ministry of Paul chained to his guards. And I don't think Paul had any idea that the letters that he wrote out of his suffering would become the foundation of the Christian church for the centuries to come. God takes the most strange circumstances and out of them brings the most extraordinary results. So don't write the script for your life too quickly. Don't try and conclude that you know what's going on too quickly. Let God be the potter and you be the clay. Can we have that? There's a, there's a, a clip that I want to show as a finish and then we're going to sing a song. Um, I want to pray as, you know, through, through this. It's in... It's in just put it on I guess just go ahead turn the light down a bit